We continue this series, First Things. We have dealt with many topics. Preeminence, the preeminence of God. Creation, marriage, God's word, sin, salvation, work, children, worship, walking with God, righteousness, and today, disaster. I want to have you turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 6 with me. We're going to read verses 13 through 22. God has seen the corrupt nature of the world and of mankind. He looks upon the earth. He sees the violence. In verse 13 of Genesis chapter 6, he says to Noah, The end of all flesh has come before me, for the earth is filled with violence because of them. And behold, I am about to destroy them with the earth. Make for yourself an ark of gopher wood. You shall make the ark with rooms and shall cover it inside and out with pitch. This is how you shall make it. The length of the ark, 300 cubits. Its breadth, 50 cubits. And its height, 30 cubits. You shall make a window for the ark and finish it to the cubit from the top. And set the door of the ark in the side of it. You shall make it with lower, second, and third decks. Behold, I, even I, am bringing the flood of water upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life from under heaven. And everything that is on the earth shall perish. But I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall enter the ark, you and your sons and your wife and your sons' wives with you. And of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every kind into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female, of the birds after their kind and of the animals after their kind, and of every creeping thing of the ground after its kind. Two of every kind will come to you to keep them alive. As for you, take for yourself some of all food which is edible, and gather it to yourself, and it shall be for food for you and for them. Thus Noah did. According to all that God had commanded him, so he did. This is the word of God. Lord God, thank you for your word, which is strong and powerful. And we pray, Lord, you would open our eyes this morning, that we would see wonderful things in it. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. And please be seated. Now, I realize it is a very dangerous thing to title a sermon disaster. I mean, worst case scenario, if it doesn't go well, we say, hey, it lived up to its name, right? (laughs) Disasters are a part of life. They shock us. They drive us to depend upon God. And man's fall into sin brought sickness, death, pain, difficulty in relationships, war, Sorrow, injustice, falsehood, famine, and natural disaster into the human arena. In California, we have our earthquakes. We've got our fires. Elsewhere, there are tornadoes and floods and hurricanes and tsunamis and the like. 
Now, we cannot and should not attribute every natural disaster to some specific judgment of God upon man's sinfulness. But the universal flood that we see in Genesis chapters 6 through 8 was God's judgment specifically upon the, the sinfulness of mankind at that time. And God had given hints at its coming. We see it in the name of Methuselah. When he dies, it shall come. God specifically indicated that there would be 120 years until the judgment, and that day finally came. The story of Noah and the ark is very familiar. Uh, Many cultures have flood narratives, flood accounts. God came to Noah. God had seen the corruption of mankind on the earth. He had seen that the earth was filled with violence, and he came and he takes Noah into his confidence. He speaks to him. And he says to him, build an ark. Make for yourself an ark. Gave him very specific instructions on how to make this ark. Now the word for ark literally is a box or a chest. It's used 26 times in this context of the flood and and of its account. There's only one other place in in the Old Testament that this uh, exact word is used. It's used of the little basket that Noah's mother made that put him, put him in, that saved him. It was to make the ark of gopher wood, cypress wood. It was a plentiful wood known for its durability. He was to make the ark 650 feet long, 75 feet wide, 45 feet high. For you football fans out there, this ark was a football field and a half long. Its dimensions gave it the necessary cargo room and made it seaworthy. This was a handmade vessel. It was massive. Uh, It was staggering size when you think of it. It was going to hold a lot of cargo and it needed to keep this cargo safe through the flood. Now, God says in verse 16, put a window in it. Now, this is the only time this word is translated window in in the Old Testament. Six or seven other times, it's translated brightness or uh, making provision for light. Uh, The idea here is that he would put a light in it, a a roof uh, of sorts. The sides of the ark would be built up, up to within 18 inches of the sloping roof where the rain would would fall off, and between the top of the side and the overhang of the roof, there would be this opening all the way around the ark, uh, providing the most practical way to get light and ventilation for those inhabiting this ark. Now, interestingly, God makes no mention of a rudder, no mention of navigational aids, certainly no GPS. The ark and its inhabitants would be completely at the mercy of God. Completely at the will, uh, upon uh, the will of God. Their fate rested in God's will. God says in verse 18 that he would establish his covenant with Noah. It's the first time the term covenant is used in the Bible. And this covenant refers to a confirming of an agreement uh, already made. Confirming pre-existing terms. Confirming a pre-established relationship. 
And God here specifically obligated himself to keep Noah safe through the flood. And he says to him, take your sons, take your wife, take your, wi- uh, your son's wives with you into the ark. Eight people total. Noah, his wife, their three sons, the three wives. And God here was showing that he was going to preserve the family unit in its basic family structure as he preserved humanity through these eight people that would go through the flood. And he says in verse 20, all these animals will come to you. They would not have to go gather these animals. The animals would come to them, showing God's power in the fact that he sent the animals to Noah. And then in verse 22, we see that Noah did everything that God commanded him to do. All that God commanded, Noah did. He built the ark. Built it out of gopher wood. Put the pitch all around it. It was a huge undertaking. Uh, He was not only building the ark, but he was providing food for a little over a year for these eight people and a a big zoo. (laughs) Noah obeyed. He obeyed God regardless of the cost. He obeyed God regardless of the labor involved. He obeyed God regardless of the ridicule that would come his way. Peter calls Noah a preacher of righteousness. He warned others of this impending flood. No doubt many of them mocked. But God gave Noah the strength and the wisdom to do what God had called him to do. He does the same for us. What God calls us to do, he equips us to do. We may feel unable. We may feel unworthy. But what God calls us to do, he enables us to do through the power of his spirit. Now the next task was to load the ark. This huge ship built to withstand a cataclysmic flood. And now it will be loaded. And God told Noah in chapter 7 and verse 1, Enter the ark, you and all your household, because you alone I have seen to be righteous. He restates Noah's righteousness. It's been said before, we looked at it last week. But when God decided the end of all flesh had come, due to the wickedness of mankind on the earth, that was the reason, there was one man who would obey him, who would believe him, one who was right with him. By faith, Noah built the ark. He found grace in God's sight. Now, wherever there is faith, God gives grace. Wherever you find grace, you will find someone of faith. And Noah was probably the best man living, probably the most righteous, upstanding citizen living. But that is not why he was accepted in God's sight. You see, Noah's righteousness was not a work on his part to gain merit or favor with God. He was declared right with God by faith. His righteousness was justification by faith. At God's command, the animals then come to Noah. They get onto the ark, as did Noah and his family. So the ark is fully loaded. The ark is ready. The skies are clear. 
Can you imagine? I remember when I was a kid, at my doctor's office, there was a, a kid's story Bible. And I would look through this as I was in the waiting room, and I still remember seeing this account of Noah and the ark and the picture of the people laughing and mocking at these group of people and all these animals that had gone into the ark. But then the next picture was always the picture of the people outside as the rains came down and the floods came up. And they're knocking and pounding on the side of the ark, trying to get in. Too late. Verse 16 of chapter 7, we see that God closed the door. God closed the door behind Noah. And so the flood came upon the earth for 40 days and 40 nights. Seven days after Noah and his family entered the ark, the floods came upon the earth. God gives us the exact date it happened. Look at chapter 7, verse 10. It came about after the seven days that the water of the flood came upon the earth. And in verse 11, in the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, God gave us the exact day it happened. There's a lot of things that aren't that exact uh, in, in these accounts. But we know the day it happened. It's probably, a, could be around 2300 B.C. We do know that God specified the exact day for us to know. And it rained 40 days and 40 nights. This is repeated in chapter 7 and verse 4. I'm gonna, God says, I will send rain upon the earth for 40 days and 40 nights. Also look down to verse 12. The rain fell upon the earth for 40 days and 40 nights. Go down to verse 17. The flood came upon the earth for 40 days. The waters rose. It shows the magnitude of this cataclysmic disaster that God had brought upon the earth and upon the inhabitants of the earth. This was not an ordinary storm. The windows of heaven were open. The floodgates of the earth, floodgates of the deep were opened up. Water everywhere. Uh, the water overtook everyone and everything except those who were inside the ark. Noah, his wife, their sons, their wives, and the zoo. Now think for a moment with me about how big this was. Only eight people survived. And all the animals. But only eight people after this flood, everyone drowned, gone, extinguished. What a contrast. What a contrast between the zoo and the silence. Now, what happens next? Well, in chapter 8, in verse 1, we see that God remembered Noah. Now, the scriptures tell us elsewhere that God remembered Rachel, that God remembered Hannah, 
both of them in a childless state, both of them yearning for a child, and God remembered them, took notice of them, and enabled them. But unlike our English word remembered, which basically points to a mental recall, it implies us having forgotten. I forgot about the appointment. I can't remember where I put my keys, and so on and so forth. That is not what this word means. You see, the Hebrew word, especially in reference to God, means to act upon a previous commitment. It literally means to act upon a previous commitment to a covenant partner. You see, God here is acting upon his previous, his earlier promise to Noah in chapter 6, verse 18. Because in chapter 6, verse 18, he says, I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall enter the ark. You and your wives and your, your son, excuse me, you and your sons and your wife and your sons' wives with you. And then he talks about how every uh, living thing of all flesh, two of every kind, will come to the ark to keep them alive with you. See, God had promised to keep Noah alive through the ark. We kind of take that for granted. But the fact is that God here, when he remembers Noah, was acting upon his previous commitment, his previous promise to Noah. God is faithful to his promises. It's good news for us. God's remembering gives hope. God's remembering makes new life possible. Now, in what ways do we see God act upon his previous promise to Noah? Well, the first thing we see is that he acted on his behalf. He did what man could not do. He removed the water. See, this was not going to be one of those, uh, you know, the water will just evaporate type things. Water was over everything. This was a universal, worldwide flood. And he removes the water. In chapter 8, verse 3, the water began to recede steadily from the earth. At the will of God, at the word of God, the waters began to leave. God caused a wind, we see in verse 1, to pass over the earth. The waters began to, to subside. Verse 2 says, The fountains of the deep and the floodgates of the, he- of the, of the sky were closed. The, the rain was restrained. The water stopped. The water started to go away. We read that when Noah was 601 years old, on the first of the month, the waters were dried from the earth. Chapter 8, verse 13. The mountaintops began to reappear. Now, when I usually think of this scene, I think of uh, just everything bright and clean. But can you imagine the floating carcasses Can you imagine, can you even imagine the, the stench that probably existed? Whatever the case, Noah sends out a raven. The raven doesn't return because, you know, the raven would, would land on a carcass, eat the rotting flesh or whatever, it would find a place. But see, Noah sends out a dove and it comes back. Dove's not going to do that. Dove's going to wait till there's something uh, clean, something dry, 
So the dove returns, and Noah sends it out again. And this time it returns with an olive branch in its mouth, in its beak. Then he sends it out again, and it doesn't come back. It found a place to dwell. The waters had dried up. But still Noah didn't leave the ark. Still Noah stayed in the ark. Now, you've got what would be called, if I say it correctly, a chiistic pattern. What you've got in this account, uh, at the beginning of the account, uh, seven days, and seven more days, and then 40 days, and then 150 days of the flood upon the earth. Then it stops. Then there's another 150 days of waiting for the waters to recede. Then there's another 40 days, another seven, another seven. And we see this pattern that God brings them through. But you see Noah. The rains had stopped months before. The waters had begun to recede, and Noah stayed in the ark. And it couldn't be that it was such a comfortable place to be. Can you imagine? Think about this. The complete silence on the outside and bedlam on the inside. Like my house. Noah didn't leave because Noah was waiting for God's command to leave. He was in the ark a little over a year. Most people would say a year and ten days. But what did God do? He gave him a sign. He gave him this this olive branch in the dove's beak. See, that was signifying that trees and plants were growing again. Olive trees are hardy. And God's promise of deliverance had been realized. There was hope. Life would continue. Gives him a sign, a reassurance, this olive branch. And then God speaks to him. In chapter 8 and verse 16, God spoke, uh, excuse me, verse 15, God spoke to Noah saying, verse 16, go out of the ark, you and your wife and your sons and your son's wives with you, leave the ark. It's safe now. The coast is clear. Time to begin again. Time to get to work. God remembered Noah. God acted on behalf of his previous promise. But we see something else. We see that Noah remembered God that there was a a reciprocal aspect. How did Noah remember God? The first thing is he obeyed God. He came out of the ark. Verse 18, So Noah went out and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him. They came out of the ark. For the first time in a little over a year, they... They put their feet on solid earth. They'd been floating on the seas. Now in Noah we see a pattern, a consistent pattern of obedience. Previously in chapter 6 and verse 22, Noah did everything as God had commanded in building the ark. In chapter 7 and verse 5 we see that Noah entered the ark at God's command. 
And now at God's command, he exits the ark. He obeyed. But he also worshipped. In chapter 8 and verse 20, we read that Noah built an altar to the Lord. His first act upon leaving the ark was to worship God. This is the first use of the, the term altar in the scriptures. His priority, his first thought, his first inclination was to offer to God worship and gratitude and thankfulness to please God, to thank him for saving them. He came to God in gratitude, setting aside this place to offer sacrifices to God. What can we learn from Noah and the ark as it relates to Jesus and us, to our relationship with God? Well, we also see that God remembers us in his mercy and in his grace, in every area of life, in the triumphs, in the trials. God remembers us. He is a God who sees and hears and cares, and speaks. God, as he, did, as he did with Noah, acts on our behalf. He does for us what we cannot do. In salvation, he sent Jesus. In fact, turn to Titus chapter 3. Because in Titus chapter 3, we are reminded that we also... We're foolish ourselves. We also were disobedient and deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures. We also spent our life in malice and envy, hateful, hating each other. And then in Titus chapter 3, verse 4, we read, But when the kindness of God our Savior and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy. By according to his mercy. His spirit indwells us as believers, gives us gifts with which to serve him, works all things together for good to those who love him. We see that nothing is impossible with God. The things that are impossible with us they're possible with God. And Noah gave a sacrifice to God. Noah built an altar and worshipped God. His sacrifice prefigures Jesus Christ and his sacrifice. Because Noah's sacrifice appeased God's heart. In spite of man's sin. And God resolved never to destroy the earth again. For Christians, Christ's sacrifice appeases the wrath of God, secures our cleansing from sin, and our eternal life with Him. God acts on our behalf. He also gives us assurance. Signs of His working. Evidence that God is at work in us to will and do His good pleasure. 
The Spirit bears witness with our spirit that what? We are children of God. We see evidence of growth. We see progress in our life. Often we see ourselves taking steps backwards, but then, praise God, we see God bringing us to a place where there is progress. We see the fruit of the Spirit begin to blossom in our life. We see purpose and hope and pain and suffering. Jesus promised, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. He was acting and is acting with us according to his previous commitment. Hebrews 13.5, we read, Never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. He also speaks to us through his word, giving comfort, giving direction. Gives us his word by which we are to grow in regard to salvation. He welcomes whosoever will believe. He says, peace I give unto you. He says, come to me. Are you in the middle of a trial? Rest assured, God is in sovereign control. Because God loves you, and the burden you now carry, he wishes to take from you. He wants to carry that burden. The burden of guilt and sin and shame that you bear. The burden of relationships fractured and broken that you carry every day. 1 Peter 5, 7 says, Cast all your cares upon him. He cares for you. God is in control. All that he does is good. He knows what he's doing even when we don't. The Lord is among us. The Lord is with us as believers. And God remembers us every moment of every day. As he did with Noah, he takes us into his confidence. He calls us friends. And like Noah, we need to remember God. It's our nature to forget. It's supernatural to remember. And we need reminders, lest we forget. But I'll tell you what, we do not forget disasters. I remember in 1971, as a nine-year-old boy, Silmar earthquake, living in Downey, everything was shaking. I was afraid. I won't forget that. Who can forget where they were when 9-11 happened? I remember exactly where I was at my men's small group, Tuesday morning. How about the personal disasters? When a loved one died, or left, or fell ill, or when you lost a job, or a friendship that you held dear. See, we don't forget about those. We don't forget about those because God teaches us such deep lessons through those times. See, trial is one of the main things God uses to mature us and to complete us. And it's in the time of our deepest need that God comes to us and gently leads us, walking with us, even carrying us because we can't walk. And going through it, we come out stronger than when we started. 
able to help others because we ourselves were helped by Christ. And God is faithful. See, the flood, the flood was the worst thing that ever happened at that point. Like Noah, we remember God when we obey him. You see, God called Noah to go out on a limb with him. And Noah went. Has God called you to do something that everyone else thinks is ridiculous? If God calls you to something, he will enable you to do it. And obedience necessitates trust. And we have trouble trusting God, don't we? What about Noah? Do you think he didn't have any apprehension about getting into this ark with all these animals to go God knows where for God knows how long he got in the ark he trusted God I remember back in the year 2000 I experienced something that was really embarrassing to me and I didn't want to admit it to anybody I faced a fear of flying After flying to places like Indonesia twice, India, Estonia, without any fear. I could get on a plane, it was no big deal. But something happened where, and I don't know what, but something happened where I became literally deathly afraid to get on a plane. And it's embarrassing for me to say to you, but I had to go to Nashville, Tennessee in early 2000. I didn't want to go. I was, uh, in, had to do a speaking engagement that was months ahead planned, and I did not want to go. I was trying everything I could to, not, to try to get out of it because I did not want to get on a plane. I figured the minute I got on there, it would crash and burn and I would die. And, and all my issues dealt were around control and the fear of the unknown and what-ifs and nothing with any real basis in fact. And it became a spiritual battle. And I experienced uh, panic and fear that I had never known in my life. And the sad part about the whole thing is that I actually, well, the good part is I did go to Nashville, Tennessee. But I actually took my son as a security blanket. (laughs) <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm telling you the truth I had some air miles saved up and I hatched this plan to take my five year old son Michael with me as a cool daddy son time which it was but I will honestly tell you today it was because I was afraid to go on that plane alone and he was the only one in the family <laughs> that I could take at that point without risk of you know leaving the kids alone in the house for a week or Um, someone missing school. You see, trusting is letting ourselves go. It's leaping into the everlasting arms of love. It's losing our grip on the people and things that we hold on to for security. It's putting ourselves completely in God's hands. Whether they affect millions or whether they're intensely personal, sometimes disasters are blessings in disguise. 
Because through it, God shows us our need. God draws us nearer to himself. And he teaches us, once again, to rest in his sovereignty. He teaches us, once again, to rejoice in his grace. Lastly, we remember God when we worship him. When we worship him with all our heart. You see, worship is surrender. It's when we give attention to God above everything else screaming for our attention. When we attend to what is supremely important. I've noticed something in my life um, that I would guess is true in yours as well. That in the average crisis, the crisis takes the attention that God should have. The crisis becomes the central focus. Our desire for deliverance becomes our deepest desire. And in a sense, in the middle of a crisis, as we're crying out to God, we can also be missing him altogether. We fixate on the problem. We want relief. We want deliverance. When when really what God wants from us is for us to say to him, all I want is you. Even if you don't take away whatever it is we're asking for him to take away. See, we're all in process with God. Every one of us. One place or another. And from the flood we learn that wickedness in our hearts is very great. We learn that God hates sin. We learn that God's patience does have an end. And we learn that he will judge unrepentant sinners. See, God's universal judgment upon the world in the flood, it's a prophetic picture of the coming second judgment, lasting from the flood to destruction by fire. See, we learn that God's purpose in creation to fill the earth with people who reflect his preeminence still stands. In Hebrews 11, the first three heroes of faith listed are from Genesis chapters 4, 5, and 6. You've got Abel, you've got Enoch, and Noah. Abel believed God and he died. Enoch believed God and he didn't die. Noah believed God and everyone else died through the flood. And then in God's timing, Noah died a natural death at the age of 950. But all three walked with God. All three pleased God. We see we cannot dictate where faith will lead. And after the flood, a new day dawned. God started over with Noah and his family, and sin went back into high gear. (laughs) But the flood did not eliminate sin. Sin was just as much a problem after the flood as it was before. And the story of Noah and the flood cries out for a sequel. It cries out for a, a part two, an epilogue. And God provided one. A final clue points to it. It's found in Genesis chapter 8, verse 20. When Noah built the altar to the Lord 
And he took of every clean animal and every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. We read in verse 21 that the Lord smelled the soothing aroma and the Lord said to himself, I will never again curse the ground on account of man, for the intent of man's heart is evil from his youth. And I will never again destroy every living thing as I have done. God's gracious covenant with Noah was a response to a pure sacrifice. Foreshadowed God providing a remedy. A remedy for sin in a greater sacrifice. The sacrifice of his son. And the final remedy for sin was found at the cross. By faith, Noah prepared an ark in obedience to God. It became a vessel of salvation. But Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, obeyed, going to the cross, and he became the ark of our salvation. Hebrews 9.26 says, Christ appeared once for all at the end of the age to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. The final remedy is Jesus. He is the way he is the truth. He is the life. We can come to him for salvation. And every day from then on out, till we go to be with him or he returns. And as we do that, we, we discover the purpose for which we were made. You see, in Christ alone is our hope. Let's pray. Lord God, we praise you and we do want to worship you with our whole hearts, Lord. We thank you, Lord, that you do for us what we could never do for ourselves. And we thank you, Lord, that you speak peace to our troubled souls in the midst of disaster. We thank you, Lord Jesus, for your sufficiency. We pray in your name. Amen. Amen. Please stand with me. As we go out, go on our way to the next thing. Psalm 46 wraps up in verse what we have been speaking of. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth should change and though the mountains slip into the heart of the sea. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our stronghold. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. God bless you. Have a great day.